John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the way in which your word brings such enlightenment to our darkened understanding. Lord, we know it is the work of your Holy Spirit that works in harmony and concert with your word that transforms hearts, grants new life, causes regeneration, causes the old heart, stony heart, to be replaced with a heart of flesh. We thank you for the work that you do. We recognize that salvation is of you and for you. It is by your grace and for your glory that this occurs, and we're thankful for your marvelous work of redemption. I pray that we would all this morning be warned regarding the blindness that is inherent to sinful man and his need to have his eyes opened by your grace. I pray that we would despair of any of our self-wrought righteousness and recognize it for what it is, filthy rags in your sight, and instead exchange it for the perfect, pure righteousness of Christ and ask that our forgiveness, that we would be forgiven by his spilt blood upon the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we do serve a risen Savior and that we have hope beyond the grave because our Savior, our champion, has gone before us. Pray that you would cement these truths in our minds all the more today and that you'd be glorified as we study your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for us to consider this morning. Who is it that really sees? Who really sees? I think the passage before us presents the answer to that. And I want us to think about it together. This morning we conclude our consideration of the events surrounding Jesus' healing of this man who was born blind. Now remember the surrounding context of John 9. Jesus is undergoing a tremendous amount of persecution by the religious leaders in and around Jerusalem. We're getting closer and closer to the impending crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're within the last six months for sure of his ministry, and he's spending more and more time around Jerusalem and the surrounding area, which is only evoking the ire of the religious establishment all the more. At the end of John chapter 8, the Jews pick up stones to throw at Jesus after he declares, quote, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews judge Jesus worthy of death for his claim to not only predate Abraham, but to have always existed. 
This they see rightly as a claim that only God can make. By the way, this is not the only time that Jesus makes a claim and does something that only God can do or only God can claim. I think, for example, just one other example is when the paralytic is let down through the roof. Remember what Jesus' first words to that paralytic are? It's when your sins are forgiven. And remember, instantly, the Pharisees were around and go, who can forget sins but God alone? They're incensed by such a statement. Jesus says, well, which one's easier, to say this man's sins are forgiven or tell him, pick up your pallet and walk? But so you can see this is, I've been given authority to forgive sins. Tell the man, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And he does. You see, these Pharisees had already come to a settled conclusion that they would deny Jesus' deity at all costs. And so they act upon the charge that Jesus has committed the sin of blasphemy. So they pick up stones to stone him. Jesus eludes their attempts at killing him. It's not yet his time to die. And as Jesus and his disciples are walking by, they approach a man blind from birth. Jesus focuses upon this man. The disciples see him as an opportunity to conduct a theological inquiry, right? Remember this from a couple of weeks ago. They ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? A question wrongly assumes that congenital disabilities are the direct result of some particular sin that was either committed by the parents or committed by the person, perhaps even in the womb, or perhaps is something that God foresaw the person would do and therefore judged him in a sense before it actually even happened. I've already explained that while sickness and disease are linked to sin, for they are a consequence of living in a fallen world, This does not mean that every trial and tribulation and difficulty is linkable to a specific sin. In other words, not all hardship is the result of specific chastisement or judgment from God. See Job's life, for example. Job's friends continue to miss this point, don't they? They keep wanting to pin Job's trials to something that Job has done wrong. And meanwhile, we who are told the fuller story know the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, by the way, which Job himself isn't even made aware of, Um, We know that this is all a dialogue going on between Satan and God regarding this servant of God, Job. It's with this in mind that Jesus replies to the disciples, it was neither this man who sinned nor his parents. But it's in the next words of Jesus which offer tremendous hope. He indicated that this man's blindness was for this purpose, quote, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man's blindness is here for this purpose, that the works of God might be displayed in him. What wondrous news that is to us, to know that a fallen world is no hindrance to God performing all of his good purposes. This fallen world merely serves as a dark backdrop to which the awesome, miraculous power of God shines. And one day, dear friends, all wrongs will be set right. Jesus' earthly ministry just provides us some glimpses into that coming reality. Some of the future has come screaming into the present as Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom of God. And so it is still today. There's an already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. There's a sense in which salvation is here and can be ours right now. And yet there's another sense in which salvation still awaits its completion, its utter fulfillment. So this man born blind is granted sight. 
This makes a declaration to the uniqueness of Jesus once again. Both in Jesus' teaching and in Jesus' miracles, he continually demonstrated his personhood, who he was, that he was the God-man. And he demonstrated his role, that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one. Even this formerly blind man, with the limited knowledge, knowledge that was provided to him, announces the utter uniqueness of this particular miracle. Because before this, this, before this moment, no one had ever heard of someone being healed from blindness from birth. As we saw last week, this formerly blind man stands up quite well against the harsh scrutiny of the Pharisees. He plainly declares what he knows, what he knows, and this is what he knows. Being blind, now I see. And he refuses to engage in mere speculation. He doesn't attempt to explain how this miracle actually transpired, for he couldn't, and neither could anyone else for that matter. He wouldn't allow the plain evidence to be clouded over with vain conjecture. He didn't melt under their pressure. He didn't become timid under their investigation. He didn't wither under the exposure that he was having to their hatred. And when he became aware of the fact that the Pharisees were just running in circles, he refuses to offer up pearls before swine. He asks, why do you ask again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Religious leaders are enraged at such an insinuation. We're not his disciples, but you are. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he's from. They refuse to follow Jesus because they claim that they don't know where Jesus is from. And as I pointed out last time, this refusal is actually just shows just how flatly they contradict themselves time and time again. For on a previous occasion in John 7, verse 27, they said they claimed that they wouldn't follow Jesus because, quote, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. So if you even just link the two statements together, they should go, well, we don't know where he's from. So he really could be the Christ. But you see that it has nothing to do with actually working through the logic and reasoning of the situation the Pharisees are duplicitous. They are liars. They are blinded. They'll become more and more evident as we go through. I mean, then once this, this once blind man all of a sudden becomes aware of this very reality, that his blindness was actually a shared condition. He explains in John 9:30 and following, well, here is an amazing thing. He says, here's an astonishing thing. You don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This blind man, or formerly blind man, is astonished at the blindness of the religious leaders. How is it that such a simple explanation is beyond their understanding? He's able to construct a perfectly sound syllogism, an argument that is valid and based upon true premises. And they can't stand it. The Pharisees had heard enough. They had been routed in this dialogue, in this debate. But rather than admit defeat, they rethink their own conclusions. They cast this man, or, or, and rethink their own conclusions. Instead of doing that, they cast this man out of the synagogue. 
the very thing that the man's parents were afraid might befall them if they said anything, remember? They're very guarded about what they say regarding, the, regarding their son. If they ask him, he's of age. Because they're scared of being cast out of the synagogue. Well, this is how the Pharisees do respond to this man. But before they do that, they give us further insight into their own wretchedness. They discount this man's words, claiming him to be unqualified to instruct them. Look at verse 34, chapter 9. You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? The pride and arrogance is so flagrant here. And they disqualify what this man is saying on the wrongful conjecture, the very conjecture that Jesus' own disciples wanted to discuss when they first came up to this man, right? That this man must have been born in sin. Why? Because of their belief that congenital disability, being blind from birth, meant that your parents had sinned or he had sinned in some way. But notice, in order to do that, what they're doing in that statement is they're admitting, they're admitting the very things they've been railing against, that this man was born blind. The very thing they're trying to disprove, they admit. Further demonstrating the fact that it wasn't for their ignorance that they failed to believe Jesus' words. It was for their blatant, knowing rebellion. They will not come to the light because they love the darkness. You see, all his life, this man born blind had operated under a wrong paradigm. He wasn't a blind man amidst a world of seeing people. He was a blind man amidst a blind world. Those who claimed to be able to see were in reality the blindest of all. For they were blind to their own blindness. And I think it's here that we get to the heart of the purpose of John chapter 9, I mentioned in my first sermon on this text that this blind man is in reality a living parable. He's indeed useful as a theological illustration, but not the one the disciples imagined him to be, right? They saw him as maybe an illustration of connection between sin, some particular sin, and this man's disability. Rather, this man is useful as purposed by the Lord to be a lesson in the redemptive work of God. What becomes evident is that blindness is not the unusual facet of the story because everyone is naturally blind. The strange case of the story is the fact that, and this is what's astonishing, that God has the ability to grant sight to those who admit their blindness, who have been awakened to their need. I'd like to summarize John chapter 9, focusing on these last seven verses of the chapter in particular, with two theological statements which together answer the question, who really sees? Who is it that really sees? And here's my two theological statements that I want to spend our time on this morning. First of all, all of us, by nature, as a result of the fall, are blind. All of us, by nature, as a result of the fall, are blind. And the second point to be made is this. Therefore, only by God's grace, working in redemption, can we see. Therefore, only by God's grace, working in redemption, can we see. Let's look at this first statement. 
Let's establish this. This is important. In order to understand redemption and the need for sight, we must first become acquainted with our blindness. All of us, by nature, as a result of the fall, are blind. All of us, by nature, as a result of the flaw of the fall, are blind. First of all, contemplate with me the consequences of Adam's disobedience. Genesis records God's work of creation. Day six includes the special creation of man. We read in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then verse 31, we're told God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. When God created man, he sets him apart from the rest of creation. The very discussion of this in Genesis 1 is very, very plain. You have this even dialogue and the use of a plural pronoun, let us make man in our image. And while there's considerable discussion regarding the plural pronouns, I believe that these are early indications to the Trinitarian nature of God. That God, while being one, is three. God says here, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There's been much discussion as to how is it that man is formed in the image of God. But most theologians agree that the following phrase according to God's likeness, gives some further explanation. What does it mean to be made in God's image? It means at least this much, to be made in his likeness, according to his likeness. Robert Culver makes a really great statement. He says this, in this case, likeness following image certainly explains or enlarges or specifies that image is not merely representative of God, but actually like him. The flag of the 50 stars and 13 stripes only represents the USA, but is not much like the USA at all. On the other hand, a two-dimensional map is somewhat like the country, a three-dimensional raised map even more so. Although both mainly represent, there is some real similarity. This is found really interesting, even when you think about our physical bodies. I think it's an interesting place to, to consider this. We know that God is spirit, right? He's spirit. He's not flesh and blood. He's spirit. And if that be the case, how do we understand the fact that God has given us bodies and that somehow we're in his likeness? How can we say that we're image bearers when God himself doesn't have ears or eyes or noses or a nose or a mouth or feet or hands? Well, you see... Well, God himself is spirit, and he doesn't have any of those particular organs. What we do know is that God sees, God hears, God speaks, God interacts with his creation, God enjoys his creation, all without himself being physical. God enjoys the benefits of all of these senses in a way that's even beyond our experience of those senses. And then he designed and gave those to humans that we might be like him, that we'd be able to speak as he speaks, that we might be able to hear as he hears. 
You see, being created in the image of God means there's something distinctive about humanity in reference to the rest of creation. Not only this, but as man was made in the image of God, he was originally made with certain qualities of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. You see, man was not created in a state of innocence or moral neutrality. Adam wasn't given moral neutrality. Quite the contrary, he was granted positive holiness. Great statement from Isaac Watts. He says the following, quote, A relational creature thus made must not only be innocent and free, but must be formed wholly. His will must have an inward bias to virtue. He must have an inclination to please that God who made him, a supreme love to his creator, a zeal to serve him, and a tender fear of offending him. For either the new created man loves God supremely or not. And if he did not, he was not innocent, since the law of nature requires a supreme love to God. You know, this is borne out throughout the rest of the scriptures. There is no neutrality in love, is there? You either love God or you don't. He's either preeminent in your life or he's not. Richard Watson states, man was made holy and happy. He was admitted to intercourse with God. He was not left alone. He had the pleasure of society. He was placed in a world of grandeur and harmony and beauty and utility. He was canopied with other distant worlds to exhibit to his very sense a manifestation of the extent of space and the vastness of the very universe. And to call both his reason, his fancy, and his devotion into the most vigorous exercise. God created all of this for us to reflect upon and think about God's greatness, God's grandeur. And man's vision while in the Garden of Eden was not at all blurred by sin. For he was created without sin. He saw clearly there was genuine communion with God. But upon Adam and Eve's fall, this image, this image of God, while not totally lost, was distorted. It was marred. God warned Adam that should he transgress the prohibition to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would surely die. Now, prior to sin, Adam and Eve enjoyed pure communion with God and the enjoyment of God's favor. Burkhoff explains... The loss of that righteousness meant the loss of something that belonged to man in his ideal state. Man could lose it and still remain man, but he could not lose it and remain man in the ideal sense of the word. While he is still man, there is something lost in the fall. The image of God, while not totally removed, was marred in Adam's fall. The fact that we're still in the image of God is proven by texts such as Genesis 9, 6 and James 3, verses 9 and 10. Both of those passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, speak against murder and slander on the grounds that when you do those things, you do it against someone who has been formed and made in the image of God. That's the reason. To injure a man is to injure one who bears the image of God. So obviously, the image of God is not utterly lost to fallen humanity. But that image has been affected. So what is our default position now? Well, recognizing that the fact that we're all interconnected, the scriptures teach that the human race 
is organically united in an original, single, human male specimen out of whom all others, including the first female, right? Taking from a rib from Adam's side, including the first female, everyone is united back to Adam. The Apostle Paul points to the common origin of man in his sermon in Athens, in Acts 17. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So we're all united as brothers due to a common lineage all the way back to Adam. This is how you, by the way, you deal with prejudices and all the rest of it. How do you deal with racism? You recognize we're all one race. It's the human race. And we're all united back to Adam. We're truly one race, all united in Adam. But here's the rub. While we're all united to Adam and therefore we bear the image of God, we also, because of that unity in Adam, because of that solidarity with Adam, we also share in Adam's guilt. As is famously said, Adam's fall condemned us all. Adam's fall condemned us all. said in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, listen, because all sinned. You see, Adam was not just the first man, but he represented the entire human race which would come through him. So those who are in Adam all bear the guilt of Adam's sin and die. So note this. So while the image of God is still present within all of humanity in a broad sense, we have personality and rationality and a conscience and moral sense and an appreciation for beauty, even things like humor. We'd all say that these things have been affected by the fall, right? They've been distorted and marred by sin. And while these have been affected by the fall, what has been utterly lost to mankind is this image of God in a narrow sense in which we speak of man's holy estate before God, his position of righteousness, true knowledge and fellowship and unity with the Lord. So everyone who comes into this world does not come into this world neutral. We come into this world, as Ephesians 2.1 says it, dead in our trespasses and sins. Or as Ephesians 2.3 says it, by nature, children of wrath. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you have to be completely purposefully blind to not see this. We love our children. But you don't have to teach our children how to lie, do you? You don't have to teach them how to disobey. From birth, we are inclined towards sin because we're dead in our sins. And so by default... We're spiritually blind. Throughout the Bible, the metaphor of blindness is utilized to describe fallen man's inability to comprehend spiritual truth. Okay? The, the 
imagery of blindness is used throughout the scriptures to depict those who are ignorant of spiritual truth or spiritual understanding. Isaiah refers to the people who are blind, even though they have eyes. In chapter 43, verse 8, we had read from Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah described the people as foolish and senseless, who have eyes but do not see. Jesus, during his ministry, refers to the Pharisees as blind guides and blind men. Matthew 15, Matthew 23 is a really fantastic place to see that happen. Paul exhorts believers to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding. Ephesians 4, verse 17 and 18. And we had read also this morning from John chapter 3, verse 19. It explains this, that people love the darkness rather than the light. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. More on that in just a moment. So this man who's born blind physically is actually a picture of all of us spiritually without Christ. We're darkened in our understanding, foolish and senseless, blind, dark-loving rebels. And this from the womb. We inherit this disposition by default, from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then there's an even more scary position to be in. The dangers of denial. The last verses of John 9, I want to deal with the last verses and we'll come back up to the ones right before these. The last verses of John 9 make explicit what the lesson of this chapter is all about. Jesus makes use of this opportunity to explain the consequences of his coming into the world. His doing the will of his father and working the works of God brought the necessary result that those not seeing might see and those seeing might become blind. Jesus says, for judgment, I came into the world. Now, instantly, that kind of statement makes us consider other passages like the one we had read this morning in John 3, verse 17, where we read this statement. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. <laughs> so how do we understand these two verses? One, Jesus is saying, for this, for judgment, I came into this world, that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. How do we rectify that with John 3.17, which says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Well, we do it as we do always. We read those verses in context. And if you read the next verses in John 3, verses 18 through 21, you read the following. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. Listen. See, judgment is here, that the light has come into the world and then love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What's the point? Jesus here, his coming to earth, 
was not at all necessary for judgment. The world already stood condemned. Jesus doesn't have to come to condemn us. We already are condemned. We're already guilty before God. The world already stood condemned. But Jesus' coming to earth manifested where people are in reference to God. The nature of people's relationship with God is seen in their response to Jesus. If you reject God the Son, you demonstrate your rejection of God the Father. So this is how you understand these verses. The object of Jesus' mission was salvation. That was the object of his mission. It was to bring salvation. But the moral effect of his life was judgment. He judged no one, yet judged everyone. And as light of the world, Jesus convicted and converted. He judged and saved the world. But note how the Pharisees respond to the statement. They're indignant. We're not blind also, are we? They asked Jesus. Notice here the ongoing pride of the religious leaders. They recoil against even the possible suggestion that they might be lumped into the category as everyone else. (laughs) We're not those blind people you're talking about, Jesus. You're not trying to lump us into that category also. Surely you aren't saying we're blind. Become angry with Jesus because he points out their problem, which they deny having. This is typical, isn't it? This is why the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. Because in the gospel, you plainly declare to the person, you're a sinner. And a person who doesn't want to admit that they're a sinner recoils against such a statement. Jesus responds to the Pharisees. It's an interesting response. If you were blind, you would not have sin. And now you say, we see your sin remains. I think Calvin does an excellent job of explaining the meaning of these words. Listen to the following. Meaning is this. If you would acknowledge your disease, it would not be altogether incurable. But now because you think you are in perfect health, you continue in a desperate state. When he says that they who are blind have no sin, this does not excuse ignorance as if it were harmless and were placed beyond the reach of condemnation. He only means that the disease may easily be cured when it is truly felt. Because when a blind man is desirous to obtain deliverance, God is ready to assist him. But they who, insensible to their diseases, despise the grace of God, they are incurable. You see, if the Pharisees would admit their blindness, salvation could be theirs and no condemnation would remain upon them. But due to their pride and due to their arrogance and due to their self-reliance on their own self-righteousness, they refuse to admit their need and their guilt remains. Their self-satisfied state of mind was the very thing that led to their destruction. I mean, this is why Paul speaks so forcefully in the book of Philippians regarding the detriment That his self-righteousness was to him. That which others counted assets, Paul said, were liabilities. He counted all of those things as loss, as rubbish, as dung, that he might gain Christ. Not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. You see, receiving the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is what's required. This is what's 
needed. Only this will do in the judgment. Only by being in Christ can a man no longer be condemned before God. So those who remain in Adam will die, but all who are in Christ will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 I also just want to note quickly, this is an interesting phrase. Jesus says here, if you were blind, you would have no sin. In other words, if you recognized your blindness, you could be cured of it. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Your sin remains. That's an interesting phrase. Because these men deny their blind condition and won't come to Jesus for help. Their false vision prevents them from coming to Jesus to gain true sight. And the consequence is that their, their sin remains. Now, while I wouldn't hang the whole, this whole doctrine that I'm about to introduce upon this one single verse, I do believe it's yet another testimony to how the just judgment of God operates in the final judgment. Men who are not in Christ, those who refuse to believe in Jesus will pay the penalty for their sin, because their sin remains. The wages of sin is death. And they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Their sin remains because it has not been paid for by Jesus. Their sin remains. So they're judged for their sin on the basis of their sin. And God, who is holy, is just and righteous to punish sinners. You see, if Jesus' death paid for all men's sins, then their sin would not remain. And God's punishment of them would be a travesty of justice. We would call it double jeopardy. (laughs) If Jesus paid for their sins... And then they pay for their sins. Jesus is punishing, or God is punishing the same sin twice. This is yet another indication of the doctrine of limited atonement, or better termed, particular redemption. Christ died for the sins of all those who trust in Him. Christ's death was effectual in actually securing for God a people for His own possession, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. He didn't Jesus didn't provide a hypothetical salvation for those who would later actualize that saving power of the cross. No, by Jesus' death, he gave himself up to redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Hebrews 10, 14 says it well. For by one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We'll consider this further in John 10, where Jesus makes the statement that he lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus didn't just die to hypothetically save some people. He died to save them. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in this marvelous work of redemption. And none of them are at contrast with one another. Jesus says to these Pharisees, if you would see your blindness, you could be forgiven. You could be cleansed. But because you deny your blindness, your sin remains. 
And what a scary and awful thought it is to think of falling into the hands of an angry God. A holy, righteous, angry God who is right to be angry with rebels, with sinners. You see, there is a huge hazard in being deceived regarding your situation. This is said to the church Laodicea in Revelation 3. It says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve that to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See this? You think you see, but you're blind. If you knew you were blind, you'd ask me. And I would generously bestow upon you sight. There's a tremendous danger in possessing knowledge and not making good use of it. I think that's present here. You know, any, almost any education seems better than no education at all. Because, you know, men are still guilty even if they're ignorant. However, when knowledge only sticks in the head without making an impact on a man's heart and life, it's a most perilous possession. It's a perilous thing to just amass yourself knowledge. And not respond appropriately to it. The more light a man has, the more sin he is guilty of, unless he repents and believes in Jesus. And the worst state of all is to become conceited and arrogant in your knowledge. Don't forget, the devil himself has vast head knowledge. He knows a whole lot of theological truth. But he's none the better for it. Because it wasn't rightly employed. It wasn't put to proper service. Those who willfully continue to walk in darkness also must be aware of this, that God may give them up to their darkness. They might be judged judicially with blindness. Romans 1, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their thoughts and speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And then what we read in the following verses is that God judges them by giving them up to their sinful lusts and spiritual blindness. For this reason, an ignorant person is in a far more hopeful condition than a proud, self-righteous, self-satisfied, unconverted, professing Christian. That person is in a dangerous place. Because like these Pharisees, they think they've got everything together. And they're so far from salvation. You see, all of us by nature as a result of the fall are blind. So number two, only by God's grace, working in redemption, can we see. Only by God's grace, working in redemption, can we see. The wonderful news of the gospel is that God is working to restore the image of God in men. And this he has accomplished through his son, who is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Now, what's different about the son being in the image of God and us who are in the image of God is that Jesus being in the image of God is not that in a derived sense, but as Hebrews 1.3 explains it, Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. While man is a created copy, Christ is the essential image of God. 
And Christ's holy character is the divine image, undistorted by sin. He had perfect fellowship with the Father. He obeyed the Father's will in every detail. He displayed love for his Father and love for humanity and compassion on those who were hurting and lost. The story of redemption tells us of God's plan to restore the image of God in man. Christ in the incarnation became united with humanity and then could fulfill righteousness and pay the penalty for those who would believe in him. I mentioned earlier Romans 5 where we get those chilling verses that we were in Adam and that we inherit death from him and also the guilt of sin from him being in Adam. But what a glorious truth it is also then to read in Romans 5.19 for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the second Adam, this is a reference to Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now, in the account before us, we notice the wonderful compassion of Christ, who upon hearing of this man's excommunication, finds him to speak further with him. Look at it in verse 35. Jesus heard that they put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? As a matter of fact, nothing could have been better for this man than to be cast out from this congregation of spiritually blind religious leaders to be found by the light of the world. To be cast out of that congregation of darkness out into a place where now the light of the world comes to him and speaks with him. Christ desired to not only restore this man's physical sight, but his spiritual sight as well. And once again, Jesus takes the initiative to make that happen. This is always how salvation comes to sinful man. God must take the initiative. Otherwise, there is no salvation. Those are the options. If God does not act first, there is no salvation. Just as the physically blind cannot make themselves see, neither can the spiritually blind see apart from God's sovereign initiative. It's interesting that some have commented, I think Calvin was one, commented on this passage as having a unique parallel to the situation which the reformers encountered. Remember when Martin Luther begins to speak out against the abuses of the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church, he's excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And Calvin notes that to be distanced from the enemies of the genuine gospel only places us where we might commune with Christ. It is better to be on the outside with Christ than to be on the inside with false teachers who reject him. Said another way, this man on that day may have lost his place in the synagogue, but only to receive his place in heaven. The best thing that could have happened to this man was to be thrown out of that dark place and then to be found by Christ. You see, this is a blind man's only hope. Faith in Jesus Christ. The only cure for spiritual blindness is saving faith in Jesus. God sent his son as the light of the world to bring spiritual sight to the people whom he had chosen to redeem. John MacArthur provides a really great summary of how Jesus serves as the light of the world. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, said that Messiah would shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Jesus applied the words of Isaiah's prophecy to himself when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Matthew also quoted Isaiah's prophecy concerning Messiah's ministry, saying the following, The people who are sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who are sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light has dawned. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So here Jesus, as the light of the world, looks at this man, seeks him out, finds him, and asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The you here is emphatic in the Greek construction. It happens first in the sentence. Do you, you yourself, believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is asking if this man, in contrast to the Pharisees who had rejected Christ, do you yourself believe in the Son of Man? It reminds us that this question is a personal one. It's one that each one of us personally must deal with. Do you yourself personally believe in the Son of Man? The question is not complicated. It's simple. Yet it is singularly important because of its relationship to your eternal destiny. And for that matter, the way in which you'll spend the rest of your life, whether you'll waste it or use it for God's glorious purposes. And the question is pressing because you don't know how much time you have left. You can't afford to put this question off. I think it is possible that people introduce other matters that are quite often so inconsequential to this question, too. When people ask about if someone has been saved, they start bringing up things like, well, what about the measure of my previous sins? Or what about the quantity of good that I have done in the past? But all those questions and all those statements are wrong-headed in vain. Because salvation doesn't hang upon how much bad you've done. We're all sinners. To have transgressed the least of the commandments, you're guilty of them all. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? Those are wrong-headed questions. It's not about how much bad you've done. It's neither about how much good you've done. Even your best deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. Anything that is done that is not from faith is sin. And think about the illustration. We've used it before. If you're there before a judge, you've just ran over three children. And you're there before the judge. You can't just say to him, and you've been reckless, Oh, well, I've done a lot of good things in my life. Right? That should just cancel out all the things I've done wrong. No, you're still a transgressor. You're still guilty. Let's remove such distracting questions and merely ask, will you trust in Christ? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this formerly blind man asks Jesus, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? The man is humble. He's obedient. He's ready to receive instruction. You see how pliable this man is? Notice, he's so bold and courageous, the Pharisees, and meanwhile, he's so gentle and receiving here from Jesus. He's gentle and meek with Jesus. This humble and teachable spirit is predicated upon the fact that he recognized Jesus to be a prophet. Remember, he already made that statement to the Pharisees. Who do you say he is? He's he's a prophet. And then later on, he says, he must have been from God in order to do these things. So he recognizes Jesus as a prophet, one who had come from God. That's as far as he's gotten up to this point. And now he's asking Jesus, you show me the way. You tell me who to believe in. I'm ready to believe in the Son of Man. You show him to me. Jesus then says to the man, 
You've both seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. Now, next to the words that Jesus makes in John 426, the Samaritan woman, this is among the most obvious, barefaced revelations that Jesus gives concerning his his identity to an individual in his earthly ministry. It's just very plain and obvious here. Similarly to what he says to that Samaritan woman, the one speaking to you with with you is he is the Messiah. This is what he says to this man as well. You've both seen him and the one speaking with you is he. I wonder if that. Added clause here, you've both seen him. It's just to emphasize one again, once again, you're now physically seeing me with your eyes, but now you're really going to see who I am. And this man, what a joyous sight it must have been. He's granted sight, and now he's being granted spiritual eyes to perceive the beauty of his Savior who's standing right there before him. And the man responds immediately, I believe, Lord. And his immediate response after that is to fall down and worship Jesus. His immediate response is to believe, which is immediately followed by worship. By the way, this is a side note. This is the reason why when we worship the Lord, we don't cater to worldly philosophy in worship. Worship is only something that believers can do. It's only something that we who worship in spirit and truth can do. The wonderful thing is that the Father is seeking such that worship Him. This man says, I believe, and he worships Jesus. And note that Jesus doesn't stop this man. Angels and servants of God often tell people, hey, stop, we're not worthy of this. Jesus does not stop him. Why? Because he's worthy of that worship. For he is God Himself. Here we see the fulfillment of Jesus' statement. Jesus said at the very beginning of this text, why is this man blind? That the works of God might be worked in this man. And I believe this, friends, that the work of God was not completed when he was granted physical sight. It was completed at this moment when he grants him spiritual sight. This man becomes a double double beneficiary of the grace of God as he's healed of physical blindness, which I'm sure was joyous. But the much more lasting and more important gift that he received was this one, that he would see his Messiah and savingly believe in Jesus. What are the benefits of this belief in Jesus? Well, the immediate benefits are there is genuine spiritual sight given. And what, 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 how does that benefit? Well, at salvation, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. Believers who were formerly darkness are now called light in the world, in, in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. There's immediate benefits to being granted spiritual life and believing in Jesus. There's also final benefits of this spiritual sight. It is often referred to as the beatific vision. 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Isn't this interesting? Here we have these these images put put together. We're going to be made like him as he is, our likeness to him, the image of God restored in us. When what? When we see him as he is. When we see him as he is, we'll be made just like he is. And I can't think of a 
more strong contrast to the final state that exists between those who believe in Christ and those who reject Christ. Those who reject Christ will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and they'll suffer the eternal torment of hell. Roman, or Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 25, 30. But those who believe in Christ will spend eternity where, quote, there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 5. Eternal darkness or eternal light. And there is no in-between. There is no third option. Jesus' coming meant that the blind would be granted sight and those claiming to see would be shown to be blind. But should blind men refuse to admit their blindness, their sin will remain. The gospel draws a line. It draws a strict division between those who see by God's grace and those who remain in darkness. The unrighteous are offered forgiveness and the perfect righteousness of Christ through his substitutionary sacrifice, if they will just believe in him, if they will repent of their sins and trust in Christ, they can be saved. The self-righteous will see only judgment. It goes like this. If you reject God's grace, you'll receive his justice. If you reject his mercy, you'll be exposed to his wrath. If you refuse his forgiveness, you'll receive judgment. You see, while Jesus came to save Those who reject his gospel condemn themselves and seal their just punishment. They get what they deserve. Here we see the fulfillment of Simeon's words to Mary in Luke 2, where he prophesied, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be Revealed. Here's the good news. I've got to finish with the good news. The good news is to know that it is not our wealth, but our poverty, not our sightedness, but our blindness, nor what we can boast in, but what we must mourn over that qualifies us to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you blind? Praise the Lord. You're qualified to be saved. Are you spiritually poor? Are you impoverished? Do you have not any righteousness to rub together such that you would be acceptable to God? Praise the Lord. You're in the right position to receive the righteousness of Christ. Jesus came as a light to the blind. He gave he gives sight to those who cannot see. He came bringing joy and gladness to those knowing their spiritual bankruptcy. He came bringing grace and mercy to those who know their guilt and their sin. So just quit pretending to have it all together. Admit your blindness. Admit your dependency. Cease from attempting to earn your way into right relationship with God. Own your blindness. And you shall be positioned perfectly for the Savior to come to find you and to give you sight. Do you believe in the Son of Man? It's only those who believe in Jesus who really see. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We are in such need of 
an honest evaluation to be done of our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. We need our pride and arrogance to be broken. We need to be completely undone before you. That we, as Isaiah did, would admit that we are a people of unclean lips. Which we know is just a manifestation. The words that come from our mouths are just a manifestation of our heart condition. But our hearts are wicked and sinful. I pray that everyone here would recognize that our just deserves is eternal torment in hell. We deserve that. We have earned it. The wages of sin is death. We've earned it. We deserve it. Not only share in the guilt and sin of Adam, but it is evidenced in the way in which we sin every day. Lord, we are a people who still have your image in a sense, and meanwhile in another sense are in so much need of that image being restored. I thank you that in Christ... That is not only possible, but that is assured to happen. Lord, I pray that you would grant many in this place repentance and faith, that they would believe in Jesus, that they would worship Him. You grant them eyes to see, hearts to believe. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.